Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Julie Maritou. This weekend, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art opens Julie Maritou, a mid-career survey of Maritou's work. The exhibition will include about 40 paintings and 40 works on paper from the first 25 years of Maritou's career. After closing at LACMA on March 22, 2020, it will travel to the Whitney Museum of American Art, the High Museum of Art, and the Walker Art Center. The exhibition was curated by LACMA's Christine Kim and the Whitney's Rejeco Hockley. The handsome exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for $65. We'll have a link at manpodcast.com. Maritou was previously a guest on the program in 2016 and in 2013. On the second segment, California Gold Rush Daguerreotypes at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. Before we get to this week's show, what I hope will be my last plea for you to fill out our biennial listener survey. It's at manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. It will help us learn more about our audience and help keep the program free. That's manpodcast2019.questionpro.com. You can also find the survey from a link on manpodcast.com. Julie Maritou, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division, presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash voices. Opening October 8th at the Getty Center, Manet and Modern Beauty the first exhibition ever to explore the last years of painter Edward Manet's short life. Stylish portraits, luscious still lifes, delicate pastels and watercolors, and vivid cafe and garden scenes convey Manet's elegant Parisian social world and reveal his growing fascination with fashion, flowers, and the contemporary trappings of femininity. Learn more about this major exhibition and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Larry Pittman Declaration of Independence, the most comprehensive retrospective to date of the work of the prolific painter. Organized by Hammer Chief Curator Connie Butler, the exhibition features nearly 80 paintings and 50 works on paper spanning Pittman's entire career. A selection of Pittman's drawings will comprise Orangerie, a standalone installation providing an intimate space for viewing Pittman's works on paper. Larry Pittman, Declaration of Independence, is on view September 29, 2019, through January 5, 2020. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Julie Maritou, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's really great to be here. I want to start with the catalog for the show, because there's something in the catalog that you have talked about, both both with me and with other people, but that I don't think anybody's ever seen before. You have maintained over the many years, I don't know how many years, an archive of photographs, of images, maybe is a better word, that end up informing your work. Throughout the catalog, there are two-page spreads of collaged 
images, 40, 60 images, dense, thick. Uh, my, my extreme admiration for whoever had to do image rights for the catalog. <laughs> um, so you've talked about this image archive in the past, but we've rarely seen it. Why do we get to see it now? Well, I, I th yeah, I mean, I've been keeping and collecting images as keeping, compiling an archive, if you will, like of ephemera and images and newspaper cutouts and p clippings and postcards for a long time, whether it's like graphic elements or whether it's revolutionary posters or whether it's, you know, architectural plans, whatever they were. And I think that the, one of the ideas in this, in one of the essays in the book, we decided to really, we, I've always, I've always actually in almost every book or every project actually do show the archive in some way. In the catalog for the Walker show, my first show, the pages are made in a way that there's, you have to kind of tear them open. And if you tear open the essay in there, it's black and white oh. images of the, of these, of the archive of that time. In the, in the show for Santander, then there's also, in the bigger books, there isn't really many, but there are like in the essay for the, for the Black City book, there are little, the archive images are reduced almost postage size and they're embedded in the catalog essay, almost like a timeline. So it's always kind of been a clue in them. In the more recent books, it hasn't been as present, but, that ephemera and that information is kind of, that's what the one space that I feel like, because I never want to really show it with the work, but I do think when you're thinking about the work and you're reading about the work and you're thinking around the ideas, it's a nice place to then add this other layer of visual information. And since the work is kind of, is you know, it, it's a distillation of all kinds of visual language, giving clues to the, the context of the place that I'm thinking from and making from. I think that's how I think about that archive and selecting those images. We specifically, for the for this book, Christine decided to write her text in four parts, kind of in a, in a way to shout out to the Mogamas. And Mogama and being a body of work. Yeah, Mogama paintings being the paintings in, a painting in four parts and that idea of these four paintings that also come together to make this one experience. And so she, but her, her essays really just think, kind of thinks around the work over a timeline of, of time from before my family, when I was born, the time that I was come, come into the world and how I start really thinking of creative work and what, what starts to happen. So thinking of that as one period of time that informs a person. And then the, the second section being a period of time from the early work into the, like 9-11 until like the early, the end of the f first section of the 2000s, so like the end of Mural, the, the big painting, mm -hmm. and, then the, and then the beginning of the gray paintings and this other period of time. And so she, so within each of those, we tried to put together an image. We, I worked with a couple people to put together, go through the archive, select in, and then find images that were missing from my, my archive, but that are part of my thinking and my upbringing and the way that I kind of think through time. And so we could search other archives to also fill and, 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 make that my visual archive more robust and, and where there were some holes and put together. So it was this really kind of special project. And it was given a very particular kind of directed attention in the book. It got me thinking that throughout the history of American abstraction, this is much less true for other national abstraction traditions, if that's even a thing. But American abstract painters for decades, you know, going back to Still and Pollock, particularly Still, have worked to mask the idea, actively mask the idea that their abstractions had roots in tangible images or in tangible other art. Is that is that a, a, a reticence of, that you never considered joining? Well, I think, I don't know. I think that I just, the way that I think and am informed, I, I don't know if it's a generational aspect, but I feel 
there's, I feel like when you come into, the way that I, I came into making in a moment of such, like it's like it's a postmodern type of thinking in a way where that nothing is a given and that, that while I, I'm somebody who so much believes in invention and that there's so much space for more of that and that's crucial to like a forward thinking, to be able to kind of be generative in making and and in thinking and po- politics and, <laughs> and acting and aesthetics and everything. Like I think that, that that's essential and that that agency is essential. But at the same time, the way that I work now and the, when I approach painting, I can't put down a mark that doesn't remind me of some other mark or it's a mark that has existed. or there. So I don't see visual... La- when I think about visual language, it, it's in the context of the history of visual language. It's a rejection of a single genius idea, which those old white dudes lived on. Yeah, maybe. Like for me, I just don't think that way. There is within all of that and all of those signifiers still space to invent new neologisms and new ways of thinking from all of that language. So... That's why, to me, all of that informs all of these, and it's not just there's some some of these photographs aren't specifically inf- informative in, in their in the way that they are made formally in that form. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's it, that was a lot of forms, <laughs> but basically, my interest is way more about what that it informs something in the work socially, if it informs something in the work aesthetically, or if like even if it's a particular direction of social time that informed a way of thinking around logos or thinking around other forms of the built environment and social thought through the built environment, political thought and aesthetics evolved and are part, you know. So I can't, so the idea of this space that could be invented void of that is hard for me to fathom. That that difference and your answer about that difference is a PhD dissertation for somebody. I mean, (laughs) because it's a real difference between, you know, the 40s and 50s guys and the way artists, I think not just you, think now. We don't generally think of abstraction as as being history painting, particularly with the inclusion of the images in the catalog. They're not in the show, I should I should point out, but they're very very present in the catalog, which is beautifully designed, I should add. So you've been you know through through that inclusion, you've been eager to have your abstractions considered as history filled and referencing to have your marks reference specific marks that existed in specific historical moments. But I'm thinking, for example, of when you were on the show in 2016 and we talked about the X mark on one or two paintings as having its roots in how houses were marked by FEMA and other governmental authorities in New Mm -hmm. Orleans after Katrina. And there are lots of Xs that continue in the paintings and indeed in, in print work too, which got me thinking about history painting. So in terms of composition, building a canvas um, in whichever way you build it, left to right, up to down, front to back. Are there ways in which you think of yourself as having been informed by history painting? Absolutely. When I really started to study painting with more intention as a little bit of, as a young artist, but with an, with an informed idea of like the history of painting and really, I can't avoid what happens when you, and I've been really studying the, the Medusa, the Raft of Medusa again. Jericho's painting and that that X is so present in that painting but that formal structure of that and I've been thinking about how how that how he approached making that painting and and for me just visually I've been interested in that painting for a very long time but I'm going back to it again I see a lot of photographs of this moment that take me back to thinking about that painting and I've been thinking about it for my own work but 
But that's an example of one. Or Liberty Leading the People, or The Slave Ship, which is not really history painting, that's a Turner painting, and it's a very different type of ephemeral. But there's this structure to the, to these these paintings that carry with them these historical narratives. And for me, it's not just the scale, but what happens compositionally. But I think that I also think like like really some really important Renaissance paintings for me, like The Martyrdom of St. Matthew. Caravaggio painting that's in the French church in that cycle of the three French church, the three paintings of St. Matthew. Or the another one that has the X is the the other Caravaggio, the ecstasy of... There's the know. one in Cleveland of a disciple on the cross where the cross is pushing out into the viewer. It yes. appears to be pushing out into and, the viewer's And then face. there's one that's similar to that that's in the yes. Piazza del Popolo. What is the name of that painting? It's, <laughs> it's leaving my head right now, but you know what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, it's, yeah. He's getting he's getting crucified and he's getting... I think it's St. Paul, but he's getting... I don't remember. I'm not... My biblical history is not... I'm not a, we'll have him on manpodcast.com. But I look at these paintings a lot and I'm really have been really interested in how they how they d- deal with space time narrative and the sem- symbols the immense levels of like se- semantics that are embedded in these paintings and i think that the way that they the way that faces and hands and feet and space t- carry and narrate are really have been formative for mm-hmm. me I think very different, but I, it has informed the way that I make. And I know that even in the most flat paintings that I work on, even though I feel there's space in so many, but even the ones that appear the most congested and flat in a way, still play with these ideas of, spatially. Of, in, I see it as these kind of moments of hands in a in a poussin even. Or, you know, you have these things that happen spatially that, that shift how one interacts with the painting and how you how you move through space and emotion. And that happens, like, for me, that's been really informative, looking at all of that work. But history painting especially. When I think of history painting, I think of a painting with a narrative that is often but not always left to right or right to left, you know, that happens on the horizontal within the painting. I think of a narrative in which the, the major action in the painting happens in the, in the middle of the painting, where your eye is compositionally guided into the center of the painting which I mentioned to point out that you almost never do that. <laughs> but the action in your painting happens front to back in that very tiny space between the picture plane and the canvas, mm-hmm. you know, in that half a third of a centimeter or whatever. Is there a relationship between your working method, your building of layers from the canvas surface outward and history and in the passage of time and wanting one to be a metaphor for the other? That's co- that's a complex question. I mean, I think like if you think of if you think of infinite time or you think about infinite universes and multi that then you become then then you're caught right in the middle of this like it makes me think of a piece that's right now that's in the sculpture center in the show that called Searching the Sky for Rain. It's this piece called I think it's called The Whole Enchilada and it's two pieces of stained glass. I think you're in the slice of the burrito, like, or in, so like the whole, there's one stained glass, you're in the, and it's this aspect of time. And, you know, but it's this really interesting way of thinking about that. And they're, they're on either side of the galleries. It's a show that Sorab Mohebi curated that's, that's there. And it's a great show on abstraction. But for me, just the way you're thinking about that is, is maybe what Edgar was suggesting by these two stained glass windows and you're looking at them and you're on either side of this one slice. You're inside or you're embedded in that and what does that mean in terms of time? I love that idea and thinking about that in terms of the space in the painting. But there's also this kind of what happens then within that millimeter of space of paint. There's 
it feels like illusionally the illusional space there's this intense kind of deep space in the paintings and that 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 can morph and fold into something else or can be a gap of piercing into a different kind of space altogether and that's been always so super interesting to me and it's interesting what you say about history painting in the center compositionally like reading right, right to left that the the raft you actually read it diagonally you read it from the bottom yeah. left up to the top right to where he's waving the flag lady liberty leading the people same thing you know those big triangle the big triangle and 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 then these these more complex caravaggios i'm talking about they spiral in and out of one another so where that narrative goes in and out so you have this elliptical kind of form of thought so it kind of is almost like a double helix in some cases back in inside and outside of one another so all of those i'm interested spatially I, i'm kind of i feel like part play with other suggestions that i like your work has gotten a lot more complex in this way over the 20-ish years of the paintings in the show. I mean, if we leave out the very first four or five paintings and maybe, you know, start with kind of the first mature work, like around 2000, 2001, there's lots of action and energy in those paintings, but the movement is either coming out from or leading our eye into the center of the painting and something that is close to one-point perspective. I don't, you're not doing one-point perspective, but I think there's a reference to it there. Do you remember why the center of the painting and having the center of the painting as a place where things happened out of was important to you back then? Well, I think like there was this moment where I was just playing with these architectural renderings. I was just projecting really loosely certain images into the paintings. And I think intuitively there is this way of structuring the composition that mimicked these types of history paintings or these type of really neoclassical paintings, classical paintings, whatever you want, however you want to think of that space. And then it became this intentional effort to disrupt that. There's a, that's really clear in this show. Yeah. So like, like, and I've used this example before with the seven acts of mercy. If, if you think about that painting and each act Caravaggio painted to exist in its own spatial uh, perspectival space, that is somewhat the way that I was pushing whether intuitively at first and then even more directly later, is this multi-perspective, you know, that nothing you could look, you couldn't approach these paintings and have a sense, one sense of, like at one point there's a singular point perspective and then there's multiple points yeah. of perspective and where you stand, your point of reference shifts with that. So there is... So you're saying you were thinking about that. Absolutely. Sorry. Long and winded answer. Yeah, no, no, no. I was just, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that for sure. And, and, the, and, I, and I pushed that, I think eventually... That fell apart to the point where they be where the architecture started to deny any perspective, any sense of space in a, in a way that there was so much information that it started to become a different kind of visceral experience where space almost bottomed out. Movement instead of space. Yeah, I, I do. I find in in your oeuvre, not just the work in this exhibition, the way the middle of a painting comes in and out of importance to be really. It's kind of the first place I go in a lot of these paintings mm. to see whether it's a painting that you've decided where the middle is going to be important or not. Is it for you in, in, you know, for three or four years, it'll be important for the next three or four years, it won't be. And it's just kind of a flowing through it. Or do you think through on a painting by painting basis, there's a reason for there to be a central focus in in within an abstract composition? No, I don't think you about don't? it that directly. I think... What I think is interesting is that with some formats, I think about it more. So with those horizontal panoramic paintings, yeah. how I structured those was really 
there was a direction to how I would structure those. And so I thought of them as these pl- as these places and that there's these panorama vistas to a place. And so the center, it felt very much to me that there were se- several paintings where that became, that, that that was how I oriented them. The center was very important. And they felt like these kind of spatial arenas, like this panoramic view into an arena. But then the third painting of that scale that I made, Invisible Line, and I made that in 2011, that was with all this architecture looking, you know, the architectural information comes out of New York City. But that experience of that painting to me feels much more like looking out at these mountains where you see tons of the the marks and what happens in that. The center completely becomes disintegrated and becomes unimportant, but it's much more about what's happening with all these marks. And it's still, it becomes much more like this panoramic scape of space and and movement and, you know, conflict or whatever. But in those panorama paintings, you know, so, so when we think of panorama paintings, you know, we think of Phillips Conning or, or, you know, Dutch Golden Age views in which landscape is the subject. And yeah. in, the, in, in your panorama paintings and, and then in the Stadia paintings, which aren't quite panoramic, but are panoramic-ish, human-built arenas are, are the subject and... I've always enjoyed those as a, as, a, as a twist on what panoramas could be. <laughs> this isn't just a painting's retrospective. There are works on paper and prints in it, too. There are a number of prints in the show, including the enormous six-panel Epigraph Damascus from 2016, which for me is one of the, the really major artworks of the 21st century. It's in a bunch of major collections, such as MoMA's and LACMA's. To take it as an example, Thanks. then, it's photogravur, sugar lift aquatint, spitbite aquatint, and open bite. So there are lots of kinds of marks and and building of, of the surface and the image there. But when you're using your hand in making a print, when you're etching a plate, for example, mm. are you making the same physical marks with your hand that you do on canvas? Well, in, in it, there are two there are two ways. In for that print, there there were there was I could make a mark like I could on because I could work on mylar for the photogravure plate. So we, so I was able to work like I would on canvas. I mean, other than canvas has a different physical texture yeah. than mylar, but it's a similar. It's ink, it's additive. You put it on, you can erase it. You can. Then after we made the photogravure plate, then we actually worked on copper on the ground in front of the big spread of the plate, and that copper was laid out. And then I went in with spitbite, which is acid, yeah. and so I'm working in reverse onto the plate that's. On the wall, so I'm working on plate on the. If I'm working on the right side, I'm the the piece is on the left. So I had to do this. I had to like really get into this zone and be and trust some intuitive kind of like understanding because you couldn't map where you were exactly. So if you, like you could with a very fine drawing. So I had to go very loosely and work with spitbite onto the plate onto the copper plates. Then we printed that in, and then the same thing with open bite where I could block things, block marks out, and then we the whole plate was etched. Those marks and the way you. The way the brush works with acid is a little different because it's different than seeing the ink when you put ink down. You know, it's a very, it's just physically very different. The material works differently. Acid doesn't work like sumi ink. And so that process is a really different process. And I think the same thing for the open bite. When you put down something for, to hold a ground or to mask something out, it, it makes a mark differently. But there, there's something that's close enough where it, it, it and and it's in that shift of those types of marks and that that makes this imprint on the plate that I find what I really enjoy about printmaking because it, it almost invents a new space and that millimeter of space into a new dimension in there and 
that to me is, uh, you know, it, it always opens up new ways of thinking for me that inform the way that I approach painting. So do you want the marks that end up on a print to be as close to the marks you make on a painting as possible or? No, I, I, I actually really love the investigation of finding new forms of marks. And actually that's one of the reasons I go to printmaking so that whether it's in monotypes or in those, or in those enormous etchings, that something else can be invented in the process of making them through this other technology. In her catalog essay, in the catalog for this show, Leslie Jones addresses or grounds your printmaking practice in Rembrandt's Great The Three Trees. We'll have an image of, of that, of course, on manpodcast.com. Is that a print that was important to you? You know, that's a print I looked at a lot when I was younger. And when I first learned about etching at RISD, when I was, that's where I learned not just about etching, but where I learned to make etchings. I studied that print there. I studied it again at the British Museum when I went to the British Museum later. And I didn't know that she was going to write about it. And then when she did write about it, and then I, it's a print that I had looked at so much, especially when I was starting, really starting, and had looked at again later when I was working with Greg Burnett in New York and different times. And so... When they had, when they, when we realized that they had that print here, I was, ex I wanted to bring it into the, into the rooms of works on paper, just as a little nod back to, to a form of making marks that was really informative. So, what are the marks in that print that that worked for you? That I mean, stuck with you? That I think the you? sky is incredible in that print, and almost figurative, like weird ghost marks that come out. I love the streaks of the rain on the far left, the far upper left, yeah. the far upper left. But the clouds and the skies and the and the marks under that, the jet, the, how how light those marks become, those very finely etched marks to then the really deeply etched marks, and the tone, the amount of the tone from the deepest darks to the lightest, the lightest, softest marks, and to do that state after state after state in etching. And at the British Museum, you can really study the states of the print. And there, it's beautiful to see and was really instructive. And But, you know, to think about that range of tone without aquatint, when you think of Goya and all the aquatints and, and Rembrandt doing that without that, it was also phenomenal. It's just, for me, it was really, it's great because it, it was all really individual marks. Have you ever exhibited your prints in states? I haven't. It'll be interesting to do one day. Or to even think about. <laughs> so because I'm an art history nerd, I also kind of gravitated toward the parts of the catalog that get at what seem to be suggestions of things, art historical pasts that had informed you. Also, you're often quite vague about these things in interviews. And there is, within Christine Kim's essay, uh, a full-page uh, reproduction of a detail of, of a picture from Sengen Ngudi's 1978 performance piece. Was it important to you? And if so, when did it become important to you? That became important to me later when I was looking at different... I mean, for me, there's this... In that piece, weirdly, it's not an X, but it has this very formal structure, that photograph, and how it documented this one type of performance. But it became interesting to... It became, it became more important to me when I was thinking about as the body became parts and the disembodied parts started to appear in the paintings and I became more interested in the trace of performance in leaving and and, and how how the body and especially the kind of twisted and and broken parts of bodies but this, this disembodied disfigured moments like how did this work as another form of visual language in in making in many forms of making and so in a sense this was important to me in that in that way but performance has always been important to me and and I wanted to have that as a marker of the opening of that 
archival section when you have all these different photographs of these different types of artists who are working and making and and participating in the construction of a social of a time like a social aesthetic time and that i think is important as a key work in that social time and an invention of how to think about space the body and abstraction in this in this way you know for me it was important in that but it's in the section i think it starts it's one of the first sections of the her essay and it's quite near the beginning of the yeah. book and yeah. it's we'll have we'll have it on manpodcast.com but it's one of the 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 detail from the larger piece shows nengudi not crouching not bending but maybe a little bit of both into a form interacting with, with a sculpture yeah with 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 these strong black lines which i think is nylon yeah emanating from her body and it reminded me or it made me wonder if it was a source for some of the sometimes stenciled but not always black diagonals in your painting i mean i i made a lot of those stencils and early on before even you know um, knowing uh, this work as well but then i did also the much later ones had known the work well for a long time and so I like it. It is definitely part of that vis- visual history and visual language. And when I think of, when I speak of visual neologisms, that's part of that, that 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 repertoire. That you know that alphabet. The recent work includes lots of vernacular terms, bende dots, but I don't know if they really are bende dots, which are maybe some half tone patterns. Half tone. When did those half tone? Yeah, the halftone, the kind of printed halftone pattern. Or when did those become interesting to you, and why? Well, okay, so this this again comes back to this idea. This another form of visual language, and has been part. You know, artists have been playing with that since early pop, and but I think oh, I that bringing it up in our art history section. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, polka. So many different artists who worked. Yeah, Olin with this. Laura Owens is an yeah. artist who's worked with yeah. that in a different way. But part of it is because. It's. I've been. I use these media photographs, and there. And this is the information that these early. A lot of these images that are in the archive come from the newspaper that was printed early on. That's how these images were printed. Was they were pixelated in this way. When you zoom into the pixelated image, you get these these dots. For me, I became more interested in when it became part of the blur. Like when the more blurred and the more, the more an image could become could disintegrate this was another form of that type of disintegration and how do you represent something where you're either so close to it you can't see the whole thing or you see the the actual pixel or matrix that makes that image and so it's a plane with that zooming in and out of that matrix it's a plane with that idea of infinite space that's that the where are you in that relation to that and and then it's also a plane with this language that we socially understand we see it on billboards we interact with it all the time on magazines and the newspaper, if you actually get a newspaper, but we it, we ha- interact with it in our screens. When we zoom into photos, we can't get too close or, you know, on your phone. So there's, there's this way of interacting with that information. It's part of that me- it's that it's, and for me, because I was using the me- that media images more and more, I think that's part of what informed it. When, when you use something like that, that has in one form or another been used by Lichtenstein, Olin, Owens, probably Christopher Wall, and so on. Do you have to think through whether that's an art historical reference you want to make or choose, you know, do you have to choose really to embrace free. that? Yeah, I feel, but I feel really free to tap into any of those images. Like, I don't, I don't, like, 
even you're happy for those associations yeah i don't to me that for those associations to come but i'm i'm really to me there are certain prints parts of the body prints that come into the work and for me i make that with a direct nod to hammond's i don't necessarily choose these patterns as a direct nod to these other artists but that happens i mean there's there, there's eight bit patterns I've been working with since or before the Mogamas, and and I went to see one of the most extraordinary shows that Lauren Laura Owens did at the in San Francisco at the the CCA Waters, and that was this extraordinary installation where there was where the eight bit, you know, the eight bit pattern was like basically the, the the one of the founding languages of that entire the matrix of those paintings. But that's the language I had been playing with on a much larger scale and a smaller scale, and and it was a part of the paintings I was working on at the time for SF Moma. So yeah, it was, I was going to say the, that's the, the, so these things happen, but they're also these wonderful kind of connections, and and I think that those that you know, and there's no way that I can do that, and somebody's not going to bring a Lichtenstein or Polka, like I mean, or Christopher Wall and other artists that have used that language before. But I think for me, it comes from the it comes from the me, it comes from the language of the of the of this media and this matrix, and. An abstraction, and I think, like I said, I don't, I don't think that you know we're sampling here a lot and stitching things back together, and it's that's part of the way that I work. Let's switch to drawing. There are two 1996 drawings in the show. I think they're more or less the earliest works in the show. They're drawings you made in your mid twenties. They're both called Migration Direction Map, and they each feature forms kind of blobular, uh, abstract, curved forms with arrows inside them, with arrows pointing in all manner of directions. I presume the arrows are about migration and even diaspora. What were you, do you remember what you were trying to solve or work through? Yeah, in those I works? remember exactly. I was making, I was making these little character drawings and then I would map the character drawings and I was trying to negotiate my work and what I was trying to understand what the hell was I trying to do. And so I'd make these drawings really as intuitively as I could. And these marks I would get as lost in a narrative and just draw, get as disembodied, <laughs> work, work, work. And then I would trace the drawings to try and make sense. Like I would use this card, like sufficient effort to try and trace like the marks, the groups of marks. So if it was a circle with a line through it and all those marks were similar, I would put a circle around them. And if I thought that they were moving in a direction or their effort was a certain way, I would put the arrow in that way. Sometimes they would collide with one another and they would almost be in conflict. Then the arrows would go both ways. Then if there was a different group of marks and it, sometimes they overlapped. So those marks, did they make each other? Did I was really interested in trying to socially understand these marks or try to take use this ve- these, these, these approaches that we use in you know, geography, anthropology, philosophy, whatever, like sociology, to try and chart and map these characters. That's how I was thinking about it. So those drawings come from that. Eventually, those things become other things in the paintings. But in the drawings, they were that, they were this really direct exploration of, can I chart this? Can I, can this, what, what is this showing me? Why? And what was interesting to me is the maps, when you take them away from the painting and you look at the painting and the, and the drawing, or the or the drawing and the drawing, and you see the map near it. The map has this really interesting composition and structure, mm-hmm. devoid of the value. Like there's mm-hmm. no there's no there's no darks and lights. It's just the outline and just this arrow. Could have been a different symbol for and charting something else. But to me, it was a different way of me understanding what I was trying to do. And I because I felt so alienated from, in a sense, not alienated, but I really wanted to be able to create in in a very direct, free way. And then I wanted to know what I was doing. And I wanted to try and make sense of that. So it was a very slow process, but it taught me a lot about how I was trying to even 
without thinking about what I was trying to make to, so that I could really make, like if you use the word speak before you think, if you can do that, then at the same time, it also gave me this other side of that process where I could then really try to understand that. And then the next time you go to make, you're making informed by this understanding. So next obvious question, as, as you migrated from paper to canvas, what did the arrows become on canvas? I mean, there's one canvas with arrows on it, but as you, as you progressed through the work, what did the arrows become? Well, I think they became ideas of, I think they've just mimicked what they were in the maps. I don't think the arrows, the arrows became ways of look at this or are all these thing, characters doing this or... Informing your hand's movement yeah, across the, Yeah, yeah. So some of those curvilinear shapes that are in so much of those early aughts paintings yeah. of yours come out of those arrows? yeah. There are also four very early drawings in the show that are built around an XY axis, axis where you literally draw an X axis and a Y axis, and then you have things going on. What did making drawings built around such a rigid linear axis do for you? Again, it was a it, it provided a structure for me to think about these spatially where. It was this superimposition of this rational Cartesian idea. So it could put these two ideas of this... Of, one, one loose, one strict. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was really these two processes bringing them together. What Where that went was the architecture. Like yeah. eventually yeah. that's what it became. It became space or representation of space or the linear represent... The linear... Draw, drawn idea of the of the idea of space. So the free hand and the curvilinear and the action of your hand and the ink on the surface has something to do with the arrows and the blobular shapes and the architecture and the built environment and the references to it comes out of the X Y axis. Yes, the Cartesian and and what uh, would you call the opposite of the Cartesian? It's not the organic. That's the good. Cartesian like and the organic. You know. We've talked about smudged and blurred marks before, but I've, I've never asked you why you started smudging marks on the surfaces of things you make. I think early on, the smudges were accidents. Then Just the like marks... your hand on ink? Yeah. The mark would... And then there were moments where the, mar, the marks were these very intentional little drawn characters, and then they became these little quicker notational characters. Yeah. And the more notational they got, the more quick they got, the more the smudge became part of it. It's like... When your writing disintegrates, yep. <laughs> when you first learn how to write, and you then can you really, really see this on the surfaces of a lot of paintings. Yeah, you form yeah. the letters really carefully, and then you learn how to write faster, and then you fa and then you're like, and then you're like, no one can read your writing, and that becomes this. It's something. It. I mean, it's akin to that, but it's the evolution of the drawing, and it's the evolution of like the the way that I was even thinking about what how the mark needed to be. So eventually, the mark became this quick notational, almost diagonal dash. That after, I mean. Invisible line is filled with just dashes and dots, basically. Like, and and the way that they repeat and collide and go on top of one another is is how they engage. But they still feel like engaged beings in a way, not. And that's different than the linear mark. This is this is why it's is so often referenced in essays on your work that your work is unreproducible because this is what doesn't show. Yeah. In 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 JPEG form. Let's talk about how you've used color over your career. In the early paintings, early aughts, late, late 90s, early aughts, color comes in most often through stenciled forms. It's very straight line, rectangular-ish shapes, often, not always. And then it goes away for a while, and there's a lot of black and white work. 
very New York of you. And then in the last few years, the color has come back and bigly. Um, there is now a lot of color in yeah. everything. I mean, I presume you're conscious of that. Yeah. It's in, and I just want to say something that's really interesting. Like if you think of the election of Barack Obama as a really, as a marker of a really particular kind of achievement, not even achievement, but a real type of change. Like it, it was a significant shift. Like, for, for the to, to to be able to elect an African American president of the United States, with the history of the United States, and if you think of that as two thousand eight, and then you think of how gray and erased, and dark and gray the paintings went, the further that proceeded until to, until we, until the election of Trump in two thousand sixteen, right? It's so interesting to me that the paintings at, during that time, and this is not a conscious decision. I mean, it was conscious to actually these shifts happen in the palette. Like for me, I became more and more interested in erasure. The erasure and the gray space that, that, that it opened up in the painting became a super interesting and active space for me to, to, to engage and kind of go deeper into. And as and for me, I think I was thinking about things more globally. Like I was my, what I was interested in as a person living and working in New York, I was thinking, I was, in, you know, making Invisible Line. I was paying attention to the revolution in Egypt and the and what ha- took place in Tahrir Square on those 18 days and what happened on the continent and what happened. In, and then post that moment, it, I left the architecture completely behind. Post the Syrian war, post the revolution, to, moving to the point of that type of catastrophe, I started to really go into this place where I wanted to invent and make and think differently from that, from the, from, from that haze of erasure and from that other space. And it was through that, through working in the gray paintings, through the blurs and through what could exist into the, in that millimeter of space of gray, it was working in that, that I think eventually somehow that erupted, that, that, that suggested more and more of the blur. And then the blur became, when I started working with blurred photographs, then I started working with mostly black and white blurs, but then I started to work with the colored blurs and they started coming subtly. That was informed by me painting with airbrush with color and that informed the blur. And then, and then eventually I started to really amplify the blur with the Howell paintings and post that. So for me, it happened very organically. That's what I guess I'm trying to say when I was working without knowing this. But when I look back and I think about the Obama years, it's mean, when the gray paintings evolved and the deepest, darkest part of the gray paintings were the last four years of the Obama presidency. And then the, this other form of image. And, and I don't, I think these are heightened. They're like, uh, there's, there's, a, they're, they're, they're a lot more colorful, but it's, and, and it's a lot of color, but it's not. It, there's like the, it's that Miro palette in a way. It's that there's there's this weird col- lights. It's there there there's an alarm in them as well. There's a they're artificial colors. Yeah, there's 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 a discomfort in them, yeah. and so that's interesting. I just I'm I've, I'm thinking about it now, but I think it's interesting, and I think it's interesting how our how we're tuned into to other sensibilities in in time, and you know, for me, Barack Obama was a really that that was a very important symbol. In, in our cultural history. Is it coincidental that color left the painting for a while when the stenciled forms left the painting? Or, or was that intentional? No, Does that it, wasn't intentional. And or, that's also interesting. And I only really saw that when I brought the, when I brought this <laughs> show together, that the stencil comes back. And it was there early on, much smaller and much more like, but it, it comes back in these later works. And Did it take you a while to figure out how to do color without the stenciled forms? Yeah, I think it did. And then... And and the blurs are where the color where where I was able to access that where I started to paint with color like when I actually started to do that and then we moved into the blurs and then I would choose images that were very heightened in their color and and Damien pushed those with me in the studio 
Finally, catalog essayist Matthew Hale got you to be very specific about source images in his essay. Um, it's probably the most specific origin story for one of your paintings um, <laughs> I've ever read. Painters can get painters to say things, right? In the We've known each other a very long time, and I send him images of work as I'm working all the time. We're constantly in dialogue about this stuff. So that, that was one of the reasons I actually asked So art historians go get that archive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in the second half of his essay, he focused on a painting, the name of which, the title of which I am going to botch. Hineni E34? Yeah. <laughs> Hineni. Am I close? All right. Hineni. Hineni. I think it's Hineni. I think that's how you pronounce it. Or Hineni. 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 So he wrote about how directly the orange that suffuses that painting, which we'll have on manpodcast.com, comes from a picture photograph of a 2017 forest fire in Butte County, California, near the town of Oroville. Mm -hmm. Is your use of color these days often that literal and we just don't know it? Or is that a rare example? All of those blurred paintings, the color and the blur and the, the source of those colors, the underpaintings, are taken from specific photographs of specific so it events. It's, it's that oh, specific. Just those. There are gray, all the gray paintings that have color. That I put paint with the color into those. Those don't have a literal mm. source. But all the all those last paintings, that room of last paintings, each of those is either a black and white blur of a particular event or a colored photograph of a particular event. And, and so that source, the beginning of the point of departure is that blurred image. Which is new. Yes. Why Why did that appeal to That you? came into the work when, when we spoke last in the show at Marion Goodman in 2016. 2016. Yeah. That, that's when I first started working with these kind of images. And they, mm -hmm. I had been using them and projecting them into the photo, into the paintings for the architectural images in them. And one time the, the photograph was a little blurred and I was looking at this projection and it felt like I've said this before, but you could see this, you could almost see the ghosts of the photo. It was like the spirit of the photo in this, in on, projected. You can in the Oroville picture for sure, yeah. Yeah, and that was so haunting to me. And these images are haunted. And so for me, it's a way of just capturing this haunted the kind of haunted reduction of that image. It's not, you don't, somebody doesn't have to know what that image is to have this experience with the painting. But for me, it was an interesting point of departure of an event or an image or how to how to push this in this. And especially at this moment and this time, like thinking through what I've, it, was, it, it came out of those Howell paintings for San Francisco, mm, yeah. which we will talk about another time in depth together, hopefully. Indeed. Julie Maritou, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. The de Young Museum is using modern and contemporary art to recontextualize historic works from its collection, Inspectors of Disruption. Unfolding among several galleries throughout the museum, Specters of Disruption draws out patterns of disruption related to the museum's colonial and geological background and connects them to current conditions in the Bay Area and the evolving dialogues within American art histories. Explore disruption as manifested within nature, history, myth, culture, and technology Inspectors of Disruption, closing November 10th at the DeYoung Museum. Visit deyoungmuseum.org for details. This fall, for its 30th anniversary, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a union of three internationally acclaimed artists, all originally from Ohio and exhibiting together for the first time. Here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin explores ideas of place, time, language, and perception through world premiere and site-specific works in the Wex Galleries. 
Additional off-site components activate spaces at Ohio State and around the city of Columbus. Here is On View through December 29th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, Nelson Atkins Museum of Art curator Jane L. Aspinwall, who joins me to discuss her new exhibition, Golden Prospects, California Gold Rush Daguerreotypes. The show argues that the Gold Rush was the first, quote, broadly significant event in American history to be broadly documented in substantial depth by photography. It includes rich images of San Francisco and of the Sierra foothills transformed by miners in pursuit of gold. It's on view in Kansas City through January 26, 2020, at which point it will travel to the Yale University Art Gallery. The fantastic exhibition catalog, and no one does exhibition catalogs quite like the Nelson Atkins' photo department, was published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $47. Jane Aspinwall, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It might well be argued that the two major events of the American 19th century to which photography was the most important were the Civil War and the California Gold Rush. Photography of the Civil War has been much studied and exhibited most recently by, by Jeff Rosenheim in a show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2013. And here's the big California and the West Gold Rush show. Why was the Gold Rush such a major photographic event? I would have to say just because it was such a major historical event, you know, well, worldwide really, and there were so many photographers that were making their way to California. Some were with the rest of the groups in search for gold and others were there, you know, primarily to establish studios and, and, and take images. I think that a lot of the participants in the California Gold Rush knew at the time how important this moment in history was and really they really wanted to have their claims and their portraits taken so that they could kind of commemorate this participation. It is a infamously thorny period of American history to document and chronicle, in part because textual record survival from the period has been spotty. Stuff that left California and, and, and went east, letters, for example, have generally provided much better understandings of of the early far west and material that stayed in california because of the earthquakes of 1868 and 1906 which brings me to the two major daguerreotypists of early california with whom you had to reckon in absentia almost who were j wesley jones and robert vance and why don't we know them better <laughs> Well, unfortunately, because both of those big projects, which were documented with daguerreotypes, all the daguerreotypes have been lost from both of those projects. So that would probably, you know, explain why we don't know a lot about them. You know, J. Wesley Jones and Robert Vance were two men that really made their way west at almost the same period of time, 1850, 1851. And Jones was so awestruck by his journey from Kansas to California that he envisioned a panoscope, a painted panorama that would be based on daguerreotype images that would he, he would take actually from California back to Kansas. And 
He took a lot of the daguerreotypes, the Shoe brothers, William and Jacob Shoe, took a lot of the daguerreotypes around the California gold region, and then all of these were taken back east and made into a painted panorama, which was exhibited at many of the cities in the east to, to great acclaim. Robert Vance really approaches it as a photographer, really interested in the daguerreotype and its looking at the California Gold Rush experience, and took 300 whole plate daguerreotypes of the cities, the regions, the miners, and also envisioned this grand exhibition, which would tour to cities in the west, in the east, excuse me. And, you know, did a phenomenal job. They were framed in, you know, rosewood frames and shown in New York and to critical acclaim, but publicly it just was not that well received for many different reasons. Some historians say it wasn't publicized effectively and, you know, then others feel that it's just the experience of viewing these small, you know, daguerreotype images. But over time, the daguerreotypes for Jones's project, we have no idea what happened to them because they were basically taken as a means to an end. They easily could have been destroyed as the panorama was being painted. And then Vance's, you know, ended up being auctioned and ended up with uh, Fitzgibbon in St. Louis at one point and ended up, I believe, in Chicago, where I think that historian Gary Ewer has tracked their, in the fire that they were just destroyed. So unfortunately, two of the really great documentations and earliest documentations and most complete, I would argue, have been lost to time. But luckily, Robert Vance continued his you know, photography in California. And, and so we still have a lot of incredible images that he did. Yeah, a lot of Vance's works survived. And, and so did the work of other daguerreotypists, in part because there was just this massive boom in daguerreotype studios popping up in California's two cities, San Francisco and Sacramento. In fact, you write that San Francisco, quote, may have been the most recorded city in North America in this era, end quote, which is just a wild idea considering how young, I mean, this is a city barely 10 years old, at least in terms of Anglo-American presence. So what type of images were most made in those two cities by whom and why? Well, in the cities, I would have to say Robert Vance and George Johnson were two of the earliest and, you know, two of the two of the best. They most daguerreotypists and actually most people who are journeying to California had to go through San Francisco at one time or another because it was kind of this port of entry, whether you were coming overland or whether you were coming by ship. So really, this was an incredible meeting point. Sacramento was lesser so, but was the largest city that was closest to the gold fields. So that was another important place. And many of the Daguerreans, once they landed in California, San Francisco was the first place that they established studios. A lot of the daguerreotypists really centered on city portraiture, many, most of them city portraiture, Vance and others would also take images of the city street construction that was going on, the panorama. So when they would take images where there would be maybe five half plates that would all be taken in a series, those were very popular in San Francisco, especially we have a terrific one by uh, attributed to Sterling McIntyre, in particular in the book. That's really kind of extraordinary. 
But, you know, commercial merchants who were coming into San Francisco and starting businesses were very interested in having their structures documented uh, so that they could show their success in the gold rush. Uh, Daguerreotypists also photographed their own studios as part of that documentation. So, yeah, San Francisco was incredibly important. A few of those made their way into the gold fields, and those are the ones that really I kind of focus on in the book and George Johnson in in a really big way. And then other lesser-known Daguerreans like Isaac Baker, Joseph Starkweather was an important one. Yeah, that, that really, you know, give us an incredible body of work. Is there a portrait or two that you think is particularly great and worth highlighting? Studio portraiture, I do. I think that uh, the Shoe Brothers, Jacob Shoe in particular, took some tremendous, you know, just kind of traditional portraits. There's a wonderful half-plate portrait of a little girl that I think is is really beautiful. But, you know, Vance was incredibly gifted. He took, you know, image of a woman and a child in mourning that we have in the book. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And then there, you know, all of the minor portraits taken by unknown daguerreotypists. And I think that those are pretty extraordinary as well. There are also a bunch of non-panorama views of San Francisco in the show. They're they're interesting for, for lots of reasons. As you noted, you know, San Francisco might have been probably was the most panoramid city in North America uh, at this time. But the other outdoor views of just kind of the city of, of, of dirt streets and hills showing a city in progress are kind of remarkable. What what did they tell us or show us about early San Francisco? And was anyone in particular really good at them? I think that the what was really remarkable about San Francisco is that it was Yes, it was, you know, this huge metropolis, but it was also burning down to the ground about, you know, once a month for, you know, a a long extended period of time. So quite often fires intentionally set by uh, merchants and, 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 and people who stored goods near the port. Once San Francisco became too full of goods and prices began to drop, uh, fires were set, insurance was collected and the cycle started again. (laughs) (laughs) That's about right. That and the fact that early, you know, all the early towns were basically canvas and wood. And, you know, with the huge influx of people into, you know, these cities, things were going to happen. And, and, you know, so anytime a daguerreotypist would visit a city, the city of San Francisco, and then come back, you know, several months later, or look out their windows several months later, or they were moving their studios about every three months because they were being burned out. It was always a new vista to to kind of look at. The stereo view became a popular technology, photographic technology throughout the nation, you know, in the mid-1850s, and it was widely received in California. And so there are stereo views, in particular by Robert Vance, of the different uh, city blocks in San Francisco that are pretty interesting as well. Yeah, there is a great kind of astonishing Vance stereo in in the show showing Sacramento Street in in San Francisco from kind of 1854, 56-ish. And art history nerds will find in a lot of these Vances and, and, and some other pictures kind of the beginnings of pictorial ideas that would continue to interest Western artists right up through, you know, 
Bechtel and Thiebaud and Diebenkorn. A whole bunch of these guys, and, and they're almost all guys, but there are women who are making daguerreotypes and early paper prints in, in the far west. A, a, bunch of, a bunch of the daguerreotypes head up into Gold Rush country several hours to Sacramento's east, a few more hours to San Francisco's east. Are they making the same kinds of pictures in Gold Rush country that they're making in the cities, or are they, or are they different? They're different because the subject matter is so different. I would argue George Johnson is probably, you know, one of the most preeminent gold field daguerreotypists. And as he made his way into the regions, he would travel, some think itinerantly from town to town, from claim to claim, photographing, you know, these really these different uh, evolving mining technologies, miners of their claims. So, it evolves from, you know, the easiest mining technology, which was panning for gold, to rockers, to long toms, to sluices, to large-scale river mining, where they would divert rivers from their original courses, hydraulic mining, where which was essentially an early form of strip mining, aiming, you know, high-pressure water at hillsides and, you know, just really devastating environmentally. And so he he really covered a a lot of ground. A lot of the Daguerreans, when you kind of stitch a lot of their images together, you get a good sense of kind of this evolution of technologies. The Johnsons are amazing. You can can see whole rivers being moved. You can see the water in those rivers being moved via flumes, which are uh, wooden-built structures kind of like aerial canals or something. I don't know quite how to, I'm never quite sure how to describe a flume, even though I've had to do it <laughs> a bunch of times. I, I think my other kind of favorite of, of, of the Gold Rush pictures in the show is one of a, a Gold Rush town called Georgetown, California. And it's a picture, the foreground of which makes clear the toll the Gold Rush had on 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 the environment. What does that picture show, and and what is in the foreground of that picture? Well, in this image of Georgetown, so this is taken by an unknown maker. It's a half-plate view, and it's of a sawmill. It's of a lumber business, and the foreground, I'd say, gosh, at least half of the image is just log after log after log and lumber. The middle ground has the sawmill probably at work, and then toward the right side of the image you have the beginnings or the remnants or the of a small town and you can still see canvas structures so it's probably you know a pretty pretty early image of this town where i think we're attributing it to 1850 55 i know that there was an engraving made of that particular view for an 1854 edition of the pictorial union so a, a lot of these daguerreotypes, and in particular George Johnson's, even though we don't know whether this is a Johnson, but Johnson had a terrific relationship with a lot of the publishers of newspapers and other periodicals and was able to have a lot of his plates made into engravings. And, and this is a good indication of, a, of an unknown daguerreotypist who has done the same thing. And, you know, these engravings, of course, reached a much larger audience than 
kind of the single-time, one-of-a-kind daguerreotype wood. But of course, wood was incredibly important, not only to building up, you know, all of these towns, but for the mining structures, you know, the sluices and the flumes and the trestle work that would carry water from mountain reservoirs down, you know, to, to various claims, sometimes, you know, miles of fluming. So wood was really important and it, it was important to for the lumber industry to kind of get off its get off its feet, get off the ground to enable all of that to happen. Dam building too, right? I mean, because a lot of Sierra Nevada dams built in the at least in the '60s and early '70s were 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 timber dams. Absolutely, a lot of a lot of those early ones were for water. You know, just to to be able to move water where it was needed. You know, that was another thing that was super interesting to me, you know, in working on the research of this exhibition were just all these early, you know, issues that California continues to kind of grapple with today, you know, water rights and, you know, having enough water in the right places. Really interesting. You mentioned that a lot of these daguerreotypes were made into etchings that were published in magazines. It's probably worth noting that this is a time when you know, it was 20 or 30 years before photographs could be reproduced in print, in a, in a mass printed volume, whether that was a newspaper or a magazine or a book. So it was common then and would be for several decades that the way photographs were translated into a way that a broad audience could see them was, was through etchings. And there are a number of examples of that happening in the book, in the catalog for the show. Could you give us some context or some idea for how important these Gold Rush Country daguerreotypes are for showing us not just Gold Rush Country being built up, but the processes that were used to mine, the way natural resources were used, the way the land was was remade, are, are, are you know, taken as a whole, are these daguerreotypes as important as, more important than textual sources? How important are they in our understanding of what happened there? Well, I think as far as the land goes, I think they're pretty important to seeing the, I mean, on, at, from a 21st century viewpoint, you know, the devastation of the area, the, you know, just the digging of every, you know, gorge of every ravine, you know, this river mining where they would turn rivers from their original courses. I mean, they were digging feet, you know, many, many, many feet below the surface and just you know, the tailings from a lot of these different operations, hydraulic mining, where they would, we talked about that earlier, washing down, you know, huge chunks of earth, but they would also use mercury in the sluices and all of these, you know, types of technologies. But with hydraulic mining, it was on such a large scale that they were just dumping these tailings, you know, down hillsides into streams, polluting, you know, farmland for, you know, miles down the stream. So they were they were pretty devastating. So I would say you don't hear anything <laughs> in the, you know, diaries and accounts. If you do, you don't hear much about, you know, the horrible devastation. You just hear about this, you know, untapped resource that would be unlimited and was, you know, divinely, you know, mandated to be used. And that's really all you hear about it. You don't really hear about kind of the aftermath. So I feel like the images really kind of hammer home, you know, the physical effects of this mining that went on really for, you know, a good solid 10 years. The one thing that I did feel, you know, 
was neglected in these images, and I was able to really kind of go into more in the book, was the diversity of the populations. Really, if you look at the gold rush daguerreotypes in mass, like I did, you would think that this was ex exclusively a white male experience. And of course, we know that it was not, you know, that there were a lot of different groups from all over the world, different races, different gender, uh, working in the gold region in different capacities. And we just don't see those, that kind of diversity reflected in the, in the daguerreotype plates, which is unfortunate. You do, though, have have some really striking images of of non-white dudes. There's a portrait by an unknown maker of uh, a Chinese woman holding another daguerreotype that, that is particularly eye-catching. Well, and Joseph Starkweather, I would have to say, is the, wow, the preeminent daguerreotypist of kind of these these. Un what we would consider unusual views because there just weren't so many of them made. Starkweather was really an, an incredible daguerreotypist. We think that he probably was not, was operating on his own. We can't find any advertisements for any uh, studio. We can't find uh, any, anything like that, that he established any kind of a business in, in the, in the district. But he was photographing in 1852. He arrived in early 52 and then was really gone by uh, 53. But he took an incredible series of images, Chinese miners, two of the only known daguerreotypes of black miners, women in the gold field. I believe there are maybe eight images known extant to Starkweather. And he really, the variety is really astounding. There's also a terrific Robert Vance, probably from San Francisco, of two men, one's an Anglo-American, one appears to be Chinese-American, and it's kind of a dual portrait that just kind of opens up a, a host of narratives. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, he was probably, we don't know the identities of other either of these men, and I believe the one you're talking about is in the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. We also the Nelson also has a uh, portrait of a of a of two men, one Anglo and one Chinese, definitely taken in the city. We think maybe I think possibly this man may have been a merchant. He may have been a early a translator. There were many Chinese merchants working in San Francisco, so in the cities. There were Chinese miners, but there were also a great number, you know, running businesses in the cities. Yeah, the Nelson picture, the Chinese man is in a pose and position in, in, in which he reads as an attendant or servant. In the Vance, the Chinese man is sitting next to the Anglo-American, slightly closer to the camera than the Anglo-American, and he's holding a book, which we can't see anything of because the text is blurred, uh, inevitably. But it's yeah, it's just one of those things that makes you wonder. Finally, I would be remiss if I didn't note that in 2008, Weston Neff, a former Getty curator, devoted an exhibition to, among other things, claiming that Carlton Watkins, the great artist and photographer of the 19th century West, um, and indeed all of America for that matter, arguing that uh, Watkins had made daguerreotypes in 1850s California and that he, Neff, had identified some 
Neff did not publish a catalog for the show, did not publish defenses of his attribution claims, and the field has nearly unanimously, totally unanimously, rejected his attributions. Did you find any evidence, any, that Watkins made daguerreotypes in the 1850s, uh, let alone that any survived? I did not. I am not terribly surprised. Uh, Jane Aspinwall, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.